Hey everyone, Christian here. Uh, like I said last time we spoke, we have been working on some new quarantine-friendly content for you all, the first episode of which I've got for you today. This one is a format that'll be familiar to you. It's a, an interview with an author whose work I really admire, but then we will be back in two weeks with something else that we have never done before. Before I play you the interview, though, I do want to tell you about Tab for Cause. It's a browser extension that lets you raise money for charity just while you're doing your thing online. Whenever you open a new tab, the extension will show you a beautiful photo and a small ad, and part of the ad money goes towards a charity of your choice. And that is a good thing, seeing as there's no shortage of people who could use some help right now. You can join Team Once and Future Nerd by signing up at tabforacause.org slash T-O-A-F-N. That's tabforacause.org slash T-O-A-F-N. Okay, I'm going to drop in one more time before the episode's over, but then I will see you again in two weeks for something completely different. Until then, I really hope you enjoy my interview with Margaret Killjoy about hierarchies and anarchism in fantasy. Hello, everyone. Uh, my guest today is Margaret Killjoy. Margaret is an author, musician, crafter, and self-described jack-of-all-trades. Uh, Margaret, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, first of all, just on a, on a human level, uh, how are you holding up in these unusual times? <laughs> uh, well, my, uh, my particular curse is anxiety sure. during the best of times. Um, so I'm uh, spending most of my day convincing myself I'm not dying of poison ivy or, you know, some other random new thing every day that I've decided I'm going to die of. Sure. But fortunately, sure. I have a fair amount of tools for it, so I'm doing okay. Yeah, I kind of feel that it's like in some ways I've been as someone who also uh, is a, a bit of an anxious person. Uh, I somewhat <laughs> feel like I've been preparing for this for like I've, I've told my therapist that like it feels like the world finally caught up to my anxiety, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's how that's going. Um uh, my guest, Margaret, has a, uh, a large body of published work across several disciplines, um, but today we're going to be focusing on the Danielle Kane series of novels, which currently includes The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion and its sequel, The Barrow Will Send What It May, um, both of which I should say I really, really enjoyed. I read them both in an afternoon each, and I probably owe a reread where <laughs> I'm not just blasting through at top speed because I'm so invested in the plot. Um, but for any of our listeners who haven't yet read the books, Margaret, um, can you give them kind of a, a just a quick pitch to kind of whet their appetites? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's funny because it, they've been out for a year or two, so I'm not like on the ball of knowing exactly how to elevator pitch mm. them anymore. But um, basically, Danielle Kane is a uh, a squatter traveler who's trying to find out what happened to uh, her dead best friend, and she stumbles into a squatted village. Uh, or town in Iowa called Freedom, Iowa, and realizes that the reason that they have this little anarchist utopia is that they summoned a three-antlered deer that um, kills anyone who tries to take power over anyone else. And that's not normal. Danielle has never encountered magic at any other point in her life. And... Um, so that's the that's the first the first book, and then basically after that, it's sort of um, uh, punk rock Scooby Doo is maybe the easiest way to describe it. Um, <laughs> that's a very people, good pitch. Uh, it becomes a, uh, a an ensemble cast um, driving around the country dealing with uh, paranormal experiences. Sure. Um, you know, I always like asking uh, other creators what was kind of the first thing that. Um, that sang to you about this particular story? Like, when did you feel like there was a, a there there that you should pursue? Huh. Um, this one's a particularly interesting, this one is a particularly interesting background in that I actually first wrote about Freedom, Iowa, a completely different novella that didn't have any demons in it. Okay. But I had most of the same characters and the, the same setting and everything. And okay. it did not sing to me. And mm. um, I finished it as kind of, I don't know if other writers have experienced this, but it's sort of an afterbirth to, I wrote a, a longer novella called A Country of Ghosts mm -hmm. that came out in 2014, I think. And 
as I was finishing it, I was just at that point so used to writing so many words every day that I just kind of kept going. And once I finished uh-huh. this long novella, I immediately sat down and wrote a short one. Um, but it wasn't as good. And so I kind of tabled it. And then eventually I was trying to figure out what to do with it and realized that it needed a stronger hook and that pretty much it needed to leave literary fiction and kind of join me in genre fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it was probably the first moment that Ulixie, the the three antler deer appears on screen that I was like, okay, this, this story will be something. And it's, it's turned out that way. It's resonated with far more people than I expected it to. Sure. So that would, that was the thing when you said, Oh yeah, spirits are the, are the thing. Yeah. And when I, when I specifically just sat down and wrote that one, you know, Mm, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's so interesting that it started off as, as not genre fiction. It seems like you, you, you feel a certain uh, affinity to, um, air quotes genre fiction. Do you have any, um, (laughs) sense as to why that, that might be? Is it something you grew up with? Is it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny because I, so I grew up reading a ton of fantasy and science fiction, but I also grew up reading a ton of literary fiction and I never really sure. like bothered to be interested in the divide between them. Um, mm-hmm. sure. But it kind of became more important and interesting to me once I, I became more aware of the, uh, the politics, not the like grander politics, but the, the sort of scene politics behind literary fiction versus genre fiction. Mm, and, interesting. Um, I find myself much more aligned with the sort of writing in the gutter. And um, I think that um, genre fiction has a, a longer tradition of a sort of writing in the gutter. And, and that's, you know, I don't mean to, to paint all literary fiction writers or, or books or publishers or anything with a, any particular brush, but that's been my experience. And so I've been kind of proud of, the tradition of, especially like I'm really interested in some of the writers who people try to elevate up to literary fiction and they're like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. Right, um, right, right. Ursula Le Guin and, and Tolkien off the top of my head, who just like went to bat to defend the fact that they wrote genre and have written some of the like more thematically important pieces of fiction right. for me. Tolkien has that whole, that famous essay about fairy stories, I believe he called them. Yeah. I, I use that quote way too much. The, there's a quote about like, you know, why should a man who's trapped in prison um, be, uh, be shamed if he, he wants to think about somewhere other than prison. Um, and certainly as, as many um, people right now are experiencing, not actually prison. Um, it's a, a dramatic difference, but um, the isolation that people are dealing with right now, I think fantasy sure. is particularly important and escapism is particularly important. Sure. Um, can I actually, can I pause 30 seconds? Mm-hmm. I just need to go get my other set of headphones out of my cat's uh, mouth. So give me one second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Okay, sorry about that. My uh, my cat Perthernax uh, loves destroying electronics. Um, anyway, yes, to your to your point about uh, about quote unquote genre fiction. I mean, something that I, I think about a lot is how um, you know if you look at the kind of what is thought of as literary fiction, where it's like mundane events reveal some emotional truth, and if you look mm-hmm. at that in kind of like cross-cultural, cross-historical perspectives, it's a very limited slice of humanity that has written stories that way. And so I think it, it speaks to, cer- to, to, to certain politics, as you say, that, that we elevate that particular way of, of telling stories when, you know, I think the, the vast majority of the history of human storytelling has some sort of larger than life element which if if told today would get it classified as as quote-unquote genre fiction yeah no that that makes sense to me that's interesting it's 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 funny because it runs into one of my strong desires is to often try to write stories that aren't 
saving the entire world from the apocalypse. Um, mm. You know, like trying to write sort of mundane experiences within a, a fantastical lens. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's my own. Um, I mean, I once I remember I, I once wrote a, a legally distinct from choose your own adventure book, a, an adventure of your own <laughs> choosing book. And um, and I, I, I wrote you know, 40,000 words of it or something. And then one night I was like, wait, no, I have to completely redo it. And my partner at the time who was like, no, you have to publish that so we can pay rent. I was like, no, 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 no. The protagonist has too much agency. And, um, and everything I've like learned about writing since then has right. argued against what I chose to do, but I'm actually very glad I did it. I, I was like, sure. no, this, this protagonist needs to, um, be, be swept along by fate mm. more. Um, sure. so I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting, uh, little bit of, <laughs> of history. Um, now on the, on the subject of kind of like, um, you know, how things are classified in, in politics. Um, you politically identify as an anarchist and, uh, based on my experience that clearly informs your writing. Um, but I wonder for, for anyone listening, who's, um, either unfamiliar with the term or may have misconceptions about it. Can, can you tell them what anarchism means to you? Yeah. Um, anarchism to me is I'm an anarchist because I, I'm opposed to basically like, systemic hierarchy, systemic oppressions, um, whether that's white, white supremacy or uh, capitalism, you know, and I'm going to go ahead and define capitalism not as not as making money by work, but rather by making money with money, um, which mm. tends to centralize money and therefore centralize power, because in any economic system, money is, is a form of power. So the concept of having a, a democratic society in which um, power centralizes an individuals is um, essentially nonsensical to me. But anarchism is basically like I'm opposed to the state and capitalism and white supremacy and homophobia and basically like these social, economic or political structures that give one individual or group of individuals power over other people. Uh, and mm. anarchism kind of stands for the the self-actualization of individuals, but it also comes very strongly from a leftist tradition. So the idea is that uh, we can be our best selves by working with each other, um, but working with each other uh, by choice instead of in a sort of top-down way. Uh, and, and specifically for me, anarchism is also uh, an existing political tradition that dates back to the mid-19th century, actually predates um, what we would consider communism. Mm-hmm. And... So I'm working within that framework, but there are a lot of people who work for very similar goals that Mm -hmm. I totally respect who are working from like a decolonization framework or, you know, like um, the the Zapatistas and Chiapas are are not anarchists, but we've been in solidarity with them and, and vice versa for a very long time. And I'm kind of proud of that type of coalition. Um, on the on the subject of uh, of hierarchies, um, you know, mm-hmm. you are a you, you know, you you write a lot of um, fantasy, and it it strikes me that um, traditional, with huge air quotes around traditional fantasy, mm-hmm. um, in some ways is is obsessed with hierarchy. Like the the stereotypical good ending is the quote unquote right person, usually a chosen one, sometimes a chosen one by blood, ending up on a throne. Um, and of course, there's there's plenty of work that challenges that, um, but at least some of it ends up in a place of kind of misanthropic nihilism, so-called like grim dark fantasy, which your work also doesn't feel like at all. Um, so I have kind of a cluster of questions about um, whether and where you see yourself within a dialogue of of fantasy. So I guess I'm curious. Um, who have you read who has questioned hierarchies in a way that you like? Um, is there anyone in particular that you feel like your work might be responding to? And kind of what in particular do you feel like you're uniquely bringing to the conversation? 
So I see myself probably most directly inspired, not necessarily in the style of writing, but the kind of framework that I'm writing in that you're talking about with Ursula Le Guin. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I've never read someone who more effectively and with more heart challenges hierarchy. Um, There are other people who do it, and I'm just basically picking her because she was so directly influential on me. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the first projects I undertook when I was sort of leaving purely an activist background and taking my writing more seriously is I... I ended up collecting interviews that became my book, Myth Makers and Lawbreakers, Anarchist Writers on Fiction. And the first person I interviewed was Ursula Le Guin. And oh, that's the fact amazing. That she, you have to interview her. Yeah. And and she took you know time to, to answer the questions of this like 25-year-old nobody, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I remember I, I got to ask her, I was like, well, do you identify as an anarchist? And she said, no, only because I lack the activist element. And I said, well, do you mind if we claim you? And she said that she'd be honored. So I, I claim her because <laughs> uh, she told me I could. And in a lot of ways, her kindness to me opened up a lot of doors that like like all, everyone else, as soon as they found out that they were going to be in the same book as Le Guin, I had no problems finding other people right. willing, to, willing to talk to me. And... But I specifically, I think of this story of hers. Um, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's maybe Ile Forest or Le Forest. Okay. And it's it's in one of her short story collections. It's probably in Orsinian Tales, but I'm not sure. And it's just this parable that talks about, you know, two people sit down and say one person, one person says there's no such thing as a... Um, basically, someone says, like, there are certain unforgivable crimes, like murder. And this person's like, well, let me tell you a story about a horrible murder that is like not a justified, glorious killing. It's a horrible murder. And at the end of it, you're going to realize that the legal system should have no part in it. And that, you know, and it's not phrased that way so completely politically, Mm -hmm. but it's a story about how in this particular case, like it wouldn't do anyone any good to seek vengeance or retribution, whether legally or illegally you know and and that was like such a an eye-opening bit of anarchist fiction to me of this way of writing to get across ideas that is like Mm. slightly less like i grew up in a much more pedantic basically i read a lot of heinlein when i was young okay sure and um and he's one of the most pedantic um, political writers. And I actually kind of appreciate his his style where he'll have like, I mean, I don't totally appreciate his politics, but I appreciate his style. And mm. where I'll have like, this chapter is in an aside where an ethicist tells the young cadet about ethics, you know? Um, mm. But that's never been what I've aspired to do. And mm. um, so as for... Being kind of in conversation, it's interesting because I'm a little bit less caught up in, I'm a lot more caught up now than I was when I first started writing, but I'm a little bit less caught up with the sort of modern, um, the field. Um, Mm -hmm. I read a lot as a kid, and then I spent most of my 20s um, doing activist stuff and pretty much just reading purely escapist, like, not mm-hmm. anything that I'm like specifically trying to shout out or anything, you know, but like when you're tree sitting, you'll read whatever book is up there. Um, right. And so in some ways I, I, I was responding not to my, my kind of peers who do work around subverting these tropes, but I was, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways I'm responding to the tropes that I see throughout everything with the, the chosen King who returns and, you know, all of that. Sure. I mean, I've sometimes felt like, and this is, of course, a a drastic oversimplification, but in the way that, you know, it's been said that all Western philosophy is footnotes on Aristotle, you know, so, so, so much of what we think of as Uh fantasy is is footnotes on Tolkien. 
Yeah. And I definitely, it's funny, the two podcast interviews that I have lined up for this week is, is with you and then a Tolkien podcast because I have a, oh, really? a metal, I have a metal band that's like specifically referencing Tolkien. And, oh, I'm um, going to, I'm going to come back to that. I was, <laughs> was going to ask okay. about that. You know what? Let's, well, since you brought it up, uh, let me just uh-huh. say that, um, you know, your, your musical work is, is maybe outside the scope of this conversation, but I do know mm-hmm. um, my audience. And I owe it um, to you and to them to at least mention that you formed a black metal band called Feminazgul. Um, do you want to talk briefly <laughs> about that fucking incredible name and what you're trying to do with that band? Yeah. Um, several years ago, actually, before I came out as trans, when only my, my closer friends knew. I mean, I was mm-hmm. named Margaret wearing women's clothes, but, you know, whatever. People have are really good at putting on blinders about things. Um mm-hmm including to ourselves. So, you know, my friend told me the joke that had been going around for a couple of years prior to that of like, oh, I'm not a feminazi, I'm a feminaz ghoul. And <laughs> I already knew in the back of my head, I was, I was like, once I come out as trans, I'm like probably going to start a black metal band called Feminaz Ghoul. And, uh, and I did a couple of years later. Um, and it's mostly, I mean, it's it's, the music is very serious and it's not, and it's a feminist band. It's me and me and a singer. Um, but with the the name, I'm I'm clearly referencing, you know, um, the Nazgul, who obviously aren't good guys, um, right. but being willing to be sort of like a, an undead wraith uh, rather than a, <laughs> a feminazi specifically. Sure. Um, and is there um, why why black metal? Is there like a a, a reason you were something you're trying to do in that space or did you just love the music and wanted to participate? Uh, yeah, no. Okay. So, so black metal is obsessed with Tolkien and it's funny because everyone on all parts of, you know, um, the most famous, um, fascist black metal musician is Burzum, which is in dark speech means darkness. It's one of the, um, one of the like what 11 words or something that Tolkien actually wrote of, um, of, of black speech and but then on the other hand you have this band called summoning who are anti-fascists um who have been working in the in black metal for for decades and are heavily it's so cheesily tolkien themed Mm -hmm. it's it's wonderful you know all of their songs and albums are called like minus morgul and and all of these Uh things and Uh And so, and I wanted to, and I, I listened to black metal. I listened to a fair amount of summoning and, and some of the other bands. And that was the kind of metal that I wanted to make. And it's also a type mm-hmm. of metal that has more of a tradition of people making it alone and also accepts synthesizers more. And mm-hmm. I made the first EP entirely by myself and using a computer. Oh, um, interesting. And also black metal has a problem with Nazis and mm-hmm. I'm, and Nazis have a problem with misogyny, and unfortunately, so does a lot of the left. And so it definitely was a, a provocation within that space to, to come out and say not only anti-fascist, but we're um, actively feminist. Um, right. It is, um, it is kind of interesting, you know, working in any, you know, I think any space that is like Norse mythology adjacent tends to have mm-hmm. a Nazi problem. Um, and I, I do remember when, when we were first kind of getting, getting not big, but like starting to have a, a following on Tumblr. Um, and mm-hmm. suddenly we were getting followed by all of these like Norse neo-pagan blogs. And I used to have to say that I, I get to play this fun game where I'd look back through their <laughs> posts and see like, are you history, history nerds or are you Nazis? Um, yeah. Uh, and in some, I mean, it's like yeah. even even before that, you know, that was there kind of even before fascism as we currently understand it coalesced, you know, like with mm-hmm. Wagner being a, a fanatical anti-Semite and specifically trying to revive Norse mythology as a you know way to consolidate German identity in a way that excluded Jews. Um, so yeah. and it's and it's. Uh, I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say or get at, but I think for, for those of us who are 
at least left leaning, but interested in that kind of mythological space, there's always kind of a, a struggle there. Well, it's like, it's the space, it's the struggle for romanticism. And it, it I, I, it's, it's where most of my sort of cultural work is, is in this, this space of romanticism of this, like, um, I mean, I'm literally in a, a black cabin I built in the woods right now <laughs> because I, I thought it would be aesthetically nice as a way to live, you know, um, and it's 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 this contested cultural terrain about whether we get to well my my whole argument is that nazis don't get to have nice things and they don't get to have romanticism and they don't get to have and people are really easy it's really easy to write off epic fantasy for example as like you know all this you know glorification of war glorification of, of kings and hierarchy you know especially the the natural you know um the blood-born savior sure. or whatever, you know, all of these things definitely play into Nazi hands. Um, but it's, it's why it's such an interesting space is because it also plays into the hands of anyone who's interested in changing the status quo or anyone who's interested in preserving, you know, wild nature or is interested in magic beyond just writing about it. You know, there's... Um, there's there's all of this all of the space I, I don't know i i'm really sure, excited yeah. about the work that people are used are doing to to kick nazis out of um out of north paganism and out of you know metal and out of fantasy mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i think there you know not to say that there isn't like sometimes i think the the descendants of Tolkien are less good about some things than Tolkien was <laughs> himself, which is, I mean, there's definitely a strain of, um, if not racism, then at least racialism in Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Bilbo leaves the Shire, not because the Shire is boring, but because of his adventurous took blood. Right. Um, but oh, yeah. there's also, yeah, totally. But there's also uh, like a very powerful strain of, you know, anxiety around industrialized capitalism that doesn't mm -hmm. seem to get filtered down as much into like, you know, D&D &D and the Elder Scrolls and stuff as, as like, and it's like a hugely prevalent aspect of Tolkien. Yeah, Tolkien is, is um, in one of my short stories, I refer to him as the most influential, unconsciously racist author of the 20th mm -hmm. century. Yeah. And I... I'm hugely influenced by Tolkien and, and one of my favorite, he wrote a letter to his son, I think, where he said that, mm -hmm. um, where he was like, as I get older, I'm more and more of an anarchist, um, meaning well, the philosophy. Yeah. He was like, he was like meaning the philosophy rather than, you know, bearded men with bombs or whatever. And, <laughs> and then he goes on to say, you know, the worst job of any man is to rule other men. Not one in a million is is fit for it, least of all those who desire to do it. And and in the same essay or letter or whatever, he also says that maybe he'd be, you know, he's also more okay with like monarchy as long as it's like this. Uh, uh, I don't remember exactly how to phrase this or how he phrases it. Um, but basically, he's saying that like it, it's not right for people to rule other people, and. I think that the reason the Lord of the Rings is so important to me is that it's on some ways, it's also sort of an anti, um, it's a parable about the need to destroy power rather than using power. It's a mm. parable about yeah, totally. rather than consolidating, you know, one huge powerful force, having diverse forces that work together. Um, which is a world I believe in and I believe to be explicitly anti-hierarchical. And yet at the same time, of course, yeah, his, uh, there's, there's definite racism within the work and, um, right. you know, I mean, it's like a critique of Nazism, but it's a critique of Nazism coming from a not particularly perfect place, you know? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, Tolkien was probably one of the more 
progressive people that he knew personally, but also, you know, yeah. a, a white a white British man who grew up in South Africa in the 1890s um, is going to have some assumptions that <laughs> yeah. are worth questioning. We'll say it. We'll say it that way. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't he doesn't belong in a pedestal. Sure. But it is, you know, I, I have to try and look up that that essay because I had, you know, once you once I hear you say what Tolkien said about, you know, not one in a million is fit to to rule least of all the the ones who want it like once you look back it's like well how could you miss that in lord of the Rings? like it that's such a huge part of lord of right. lord of the Rings. so it's really fascinating to 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 hear you say that yeah and it's it's unfortunately like both left and right um both the left and right will sometimes draw from the same well and the same mm. concept of you know, well, like the reason Aragorn is fit to be king is because he doesn't want to be king. But it's also this like blood thing or like critiquing, right. you know, the orcs are the orcs, the proletarians. Are they the urban poor, you know, and in which case, like they're certainly being demonized, you know, and um, I've always right. also been interested in a take, which I haven't done with feminine school, but I'll probably do it more at some point about basically just from the orcs point of view about like Sauron and Saruman being, you know, um, industrial bosses, but it's not uh -huh. in the orcs best interest to, to cut down the forests. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we kind of, um, in once in future nerd, um, we've kind of focused on kind of, um, you know, an anti-colonial uh, reading of it where, you know, because orcs represent this kind of, um, uh, they're a, 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 a racial, they're, they're heavily racialized and they're mm -hmm. this um, always chaotic evil by birth is kind of the thing about mm -hmm. orcs. So I see them as kind of the, the racial other that, that colonialism uses to justify itself. Cause like, if we don't destroy them, they'll, totally. they'll destroy us is the, is the implication. Um, but it's kind of, you know, it's, it, to the point of like sometimes Tolkien's descendants are less good about some things than he himself was. It's like, um, you know, there's some speculation in the in the with the books that, um, you know, based on how we would define races today, that that Aragorn might be like at least North African because there's. Um, you know, some ties between like Numenor and, and Egypt in Tolkien's mind. Um, hmm, whereas okay. like, um, you know, Peter Jackson, as much as I, I, I mean, I adore the, those movies are why I fell in love with movies and that's, that's my day job is yeah. working in movies. But um, Peter Jackson definitely made the choice to like all of the fellowship was going to be Europeans and all of the orcs were going to be Maori. And like, I know that's the extras you get when you film in New Zealand, but still like you could have put, you know, a few white right. guys in the front of the crowd just to, for the optics of it, you know? Right. Totally. Okay. Just going to take a quick break in the interview here to tell you about a few ways you can help us keep doing our thing. Um, we absolutely know that money is tight for a lot of people at present, uh, but if you do have the means, your support will help keep the show free for everybody else. So if you're so inclined, you can buy some of our music at onceinfuturenerd.bandcamp.com. You can buy some merchandise at onceinfuturenerd.com slash merch, or you can support our sponsors, and that really is a huge help to us if you do that. Uh, for example, Shaker and Spoon. Shaker and Spoon is a subscription cocktail service that helps you learn how to make handcrafted cocktails right at home. Every box comes with enough ingredients to make three different cocktail recipes developed by world-class mixologists. All you need to do is buy one bottle of that month's spirit, and you have all you need to make 12 drinks at home. At just $40 to $50 per month, plus the cost of the bottle, this is a super cost-effective way to enjoy craft cocktails. And you can skip or cancel boxes at any time. Class up your nightcaps, impress everybody on the Zoom happy hour, or be the best quarantine roommate of all time with your Shaker and Spoon box. And you can get $20 off your first box at shakerandspoon.com slash T-O-A-F-N. That's shakerandspoon.com slash T-O-A-F-N. Okay, back to the interview. You know, you mentioned you talked about um, left and the right um, drawing on on certain similar veins, and something that I I wanted to bring up that I that I loved in Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion is that um, in Ulixi, I read 
I read a, a, a good faith expression um, of a of a personal anxiety about um, justice in in left wing spaces and a kind of, um, quote, you know, quote unquote, left authoritarianism. And that's a subject where, um, in my opinion, reactionary bad faith has made good faith reckoning very fraught. Um, and I wonder if I was off base in reading it that way. And if not, can you can you talk about some of that that tension? No, I think that's a fairly accurate reading. Um, so in in the book, um, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say, you know, this this demon deer, Ulysses, is a guardian spirit who kills anyone who tries to exert power over anyone else. And therefore, no one. And they they have summoned this deer in order to stop essentially an authoritarian takeover of this uh, this utopian space um and it goes badly and i mean in a lot of ways it's the ring of power it's um it's this critique of taking an easier way out of um instead of acting with agency ourselves finding a um an outside force that can do it for us and right. i think it's that tied with authoritarianism that really causes so many projects to fall apart um mm-hmm. and so many i've lived in a lot of um reasonably large-scale short-lived anarchist spaces where you mm-hmm. know several hundred people are gathered together for a protest for a week or you know, 40 people are living in the woods to stop a, a logging project or something like that. I've also lived in, in large squatted spaces and um, never anything quite so large as, as Freedom Iowa. That's a sort of utopian imagining on my part. But mm-hmm. one of the most dangerous things are, and Occupy camps are a good example of this too. The people who are going to volunteer to do security, like, Right. Often that's where you start having these power imbalances come from. And you could even look at the sort of utopian project that's happening in northern Syria, the the place that most people are calling Rojava. The egalitarian aims of it are on some level neat by by necessity because they're being invaded by Turkey. And before that, they were in a war against um, ISIS. They the needs of the, the war have often come ahead of the needs of the horizontalism that they are mm-hmm. fighting for. And, and that's not to say that that's bad of them to, to not get killed and right. figure out what they need to do to not be killed, but it's always going to be a tension. And that's, and that's the tension that I'm trying to, to draw out in the Lamb will slaughter the lion. Yeah, no, I, I really, it, I, that felt really, um, refreshing to me because I, I tend to see, you know, in the, in the, the conversation online where, um, quote unquote, authoritarian leftism is sometimes <laughs> meant to say, like, I shouldn't say slurs when I teach a college class. Um, you know, you either get totally, <laughs> totally bad faith hand wringing, um, from, uh, centrists and, and conservatives that, you know, um, an account- accountability for anyone powerful anywhere is, you know, a step away from gulags. Um, and right. then the response, to, the response to that can be sometimes an almost like a, an almost tankyish tendency to pretend like, <laughs> oh, Stalin and Mao did nothing wrong, and even if they did, those people deserved it. You know, it, um, yeah. and so it felt like really refreshing to so- hear somebody um, reckon in good faith with, with that tension. And I, I will admit that you had me, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not as read up in, um, leftist traditions as, uh, certainly mm-hmm. as, as, as you are. Um, but you definitely had me Googling the Kronstadt rebellion and, and things <laughs> like that because, um, you know, how, how the Soviet union went off the rails is something that I think, um, the the left needs to reckon with in a, like we have we have to Absolutely. talk about like how how have these major high profile um left wing projects failed and turned you know at what point 
do you go off the rails and now you're just um, authoritarianism with boring clothes, you know, like, <laughs> um, uh, and so, yeah, I was like, I, that was a really eye opening to me to read about the Kronstadt rebellion. And I was like, where is the battleship Potemkin two about this, uh, this event? Can you actually, can you just give people a quick uh, rundown on that? Cause I thought it was so interesting. Yeah, actually, it's funny. I'd, I'd forgotten I referenced it in the in the book, but it makes sense. Uh, one of the characters in the book is reading a book about the Kronstadt Rebellion, and what it was is that, um, to my understanding, uh, and I'm not crazy read up on it, but I've read up mm-hmm. more than probably the average person I don't know mm-hmm. about the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution started off pluralist. It was um, socialist and communist in, in by most standards, but it was a, a pluralism within those where you, multiple tendencies were working together to have a revolution. And essentially, at some point, the Bolsheviks, who were certainly a minority party, declared it was actually their revolution and Mm. that they were in charge. And there was this rebellion that happened in in Kronstadt, just a city in northern Russia, I guess. And uh, it was largely the military force that defended this rebellion were anarchist sailors. And they, but it wasn't a purely anarchist rebellion. That was one of the things that I find so beautiful about it. They put out a list of 10 demands, basically. And they were like, look, we hate capitalism and the czar too, but we can't have the party members eating better than us. We can't have a suspension of free speech. And one of the things that they fought for is that they were like, if some guy has a small farm and isn't hiring labor, so he's not extracting the surplus value created by by someone else and pocketing it he can keep having a small farm so basically they, one of the things that they were fighting for was against forced collectivization and that's a really important sticking point to me because several of the large-scale anarchist projects uh ukraine during around the same time spain about 20 years later and i need to read up more about the people's republic of manchuria the the korean anarchist project um i don't know about how this part went down there but they Mm. didn't force collectivization instead they were like well we think it's a good idea but if you're not if you're working land that's you know sized for you and your family we're not going to stop you and um at least in revolutionary catalonia and in spain as far as i understand lots of farmers then were like started off being like yeah i'm going to keep what's mine and then about a year later they were like Oh, actually, collectivization makes sense. And Mm. to me, that's the core of why you can't hold a gun to someone's head and make them be an anarchist. But unfortunately, you can. Yeah, exactly. But you can hold a gun to someone's head and make them a communist. And that's a shame. Um, And and so I think that's why the Russian Revolution went bad is because it stopped being a pluralist society and started being a, a single a single ideology thank you for that yeah. and there's, I, there's um so much more that we could talk about in that vein but i don't uh, i don't want to keep you forever um i i do b- before we we wrap up i just mm-hmm. want to mention that i don't know how familiar you are with kind of the um, the audio drama space or spaces such as they they are um right now uh but it does it strikes me that so many of the elements of the danielle kane series that the the audio world as 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 i'm experiencing mm-hmm. it would absolutely eat it up um and not to put you on the spot or anything but i, I wonder if you had ever thought about uh adapting this to other um uh media you 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 said something interesting when we first started talking about when Ulixi first appeared on the screen um so i wonder <laughs> if you had any thoughts about ever adapting any of this to another uh medium or, or anything like that well i i'm highly i mean i'm actively encouraging anyone who enjoys the books who wish they were in audio format to to get at tour.com about it um and um, uh, I don't currently have the sort of resources necessary to uh, produce the audio version myself, um, and or I wouldn't I wouldn't do it as as well. Basically, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's these are my uh, my two most like sort of widely published books because they're my my two mainstream published books, um, mm-hmm. and I. I like that about them. They're able to reach more people because of that. So I would highly encourage anyone to, to bug tour.com about doing an audio version. Um, and 
Yeah, I don't know. I um, I I would I would love it if someone buys the rights. Although, to to do a screen adaptation, um, I I was in conversation with a director, a Hollywood director, about mm -hmm. doing it, uh, possibly as a TV show. It ended up falling through, and one of the reasons it fell through, which is kind of interesting to me, is that he, I mean, he's a, a mainstream Hollywood, you know, TV and mm -hmm. movie uh, director. And, right. but he, he found something he really cared about in these, in, in the books. And so he was interested in it, but then through talking to his team, he realized that he'd have to strip out so much of the, the meaning, the more radical concepts in order to basically to sell, to get money, to make it. Yeah. And it's funny to me because I'm broke enough that I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, uh <-huh>. um, <laughs> You know, if you make them all liberals, like, I'll be annoyed as long as you don't have like a, you know, cis actor playing the trans characters or something. Right. Um, because uh, I don't know. I mean, like, that's not what I would want. I would love to see the Danielle Kane series adapted for especially TV, possibly movie, but especially TV. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, a Country of Ghosts was adapted to uh, an indie film in Montreal that's um, mm. half French, half English, and which is not widely distributed, unfortunately. Mm. And when they, they made it, I had to have this like really intense realization that I think most authors who get, are lucky enough to have people resonate with their work enough to make them their own. But I had to realize that it's not my movie. You know, mm. and and that letting go was like hard and worthwhile. Um, and so it's hard to figure out. I would either need to if I wanted to work on it in a different medium, I would either need to find people. I would either need to be in charge or I would need to let go. Right. Speaking from what limited I experience, I I have, you know, Hollywood is such a strange place politically in the sense that you know wants to see itself as left-leaning but is obviously this giant industry uh that can yeah. only you know and it's it's fascinating the stuff that gets through or doesn't like there is you know there was some stuff getting made in the 80s it's like i mean when you watch they live by john carpenter uh -huh. today it's like yeah. you know they could remake that movie shot for shot line for line and all they'd have to change is you know give the cops better guns and it would feel real <laughs> today you know um yeah and, um I but at totally the same time that. it'd be incredible I, and get, get the rock in there you know you need another wrestler as a lead especially um, and you need the really long homoerotic fight that's like oh yes. unbearably <laughs> long for no reason. You need longer, that. longer, ideally. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> what an incredible choice, Mr. Carpenter made there. Um, yeah, but, but it's 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 it, and then at the same time, you know, and and do the right thing is another movie that's like you know they could remake it lined. There's a Trump joke in Do the Right Thing, um, <laughs> and like, um, but at the same time, Hollywood is making you know Top Gun. Um, which yeah. while also having plenty of homoerotic subtext is definitely, you know, a rah-rah American imperialism. And there's a, a lot to think about in terms of, you know, why did, um, I am very grateful to be um, part of a, of a union that is still relatively strong. Um, and that, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the film industry unions survived Reagan better than a lot of other sectors. Um, and yeah. that's an interesting question of, why is it because it was kind of it was a, a a white collar union that had the kind of the cultural capital to weather the storm is it because we were willing to participate in the imperialist project with things like top gun um i don't know mm. but that's a that's a much longer uh separate conversation and i, I won't keep you on the phone for all of I bet that it was because but... it was less economically precarious that's my cough off the top of my head guess mm. you know because in if the you're sense a coal that, like, miner if you're a coal miner and you strike, I've like talked to coal miners who were part of the mm. destruction of the coal mine unions in the eighties. And they mm. were like, yeah, we'd be on strike for a for hundred days, but then all the scabs would come by and just wave hundred dollar bills in our face. And, yeah. you know, um, and that's not to say, I mean, strike is always an economic hardship. Sorry, not to totally derail. I'm just like, no, no, I'm actually really curious. It's a really interesting question of why the screenwriters union survived when so many unions failed. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Part of it is yeah being able to 
you know, weather the, the, uh, the storm longer because of existing, you know, resources and, and cultural capital. I'm, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. then again, during, the, during the, the famous writer's strike that happened in my lifetime, they just started making, um, more reality TV, including the apprentice. So talk about a, a butterfly <laughs> flapping its wings. Um, oh God. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, well, Great. So um, anyone who listened to this interview um, and wants to check out more of your work, Margaret, or find out more about you, um, where should they go? Uh, I have a website that's birdsbeforethestorm.net that'll have links to my different books and uh, short stories that are out in different magazines. And you can get my books wherever you get your books, which hopefully these days is both delivery and not Amazon, if you're able to. Mm-hmm. No shame with anyone getting books however they need to, but, um, and, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at magpie killjoy. Great. And is there any, um, work in particular that you want to, to plug right now? Uh, well, I did just put out an album with Feminine School called The Dawn for Men. And that's, that's the thing that's on my mind the most right now. So, and, uh, where, where is that? Where can people get that? Uh, yeah, uh, Bandcamp. Go to feminazgool.bandcamp.com. Perfect. Do I need? I, I assume I don't need the diacritical mark in my uh, to get to to get to feminazgool.bandcamp.com. No, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's I have gotten good at type. learning how to type it, but sure. no, it, <laughs> all of our official stuff does not have the the mark over the U. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably wise. Whatever else it, it was. Um, <laughs> Great. Well, um, Margaret Kiljoy, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. It's really been a, a pleasure and, and enlightening, and I'm, uh, I'm really grateful I got the chance to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying the Once and Future Nerd, you might enjoy this show from our friends. You see, looking up from the ground, blood red clouds boiling across the sky. You did ask me to bring the thunder. <laughs> Dejan! Dejan! Uh, help! I've got the chalice, please! Well, if they're following you, then I guess that takes care of a loose end for me. All of you feel the earth beneath you shake and crack and break. I feel that I have failed both of you, and I am sorry for that. This has nothing to do with you being a bad leader. Do you want a countdown? Oh, I think I want a countdown. I want to help. I always had good intention. I did not deserve to die. Now. The Lucky Die Podcast is a weekly 5e Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast. Join our adventure every Monday wherever you download podcasts by searching for The Lucky Die.